The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, with host Carol Oglesby. This program explores the historical roots that women's sport has taken in the past half century, from light competition to collegiate, professional, and Olympic sports today. Now, here is your host, Carol Oglesby. Welcome, welcome, everyone, to Women in Sport, The Long Road Up. I'm happy to be your host for 13 shows this summer, As a lifelong academic and advocate for women's sport, I can tell you that our shows feature many of the best and the brightest on these issues. Case in point, our guest today, Dr. Jamie Schultz at Pennsylvania State University and Dr. Maureen Moe-Smith, usually at Cal State University in Sacramento, but today hanging out in China. In case some of our listeners have not been deeply involved in sport history, I'm going to ask each of you to just take a couple of minutes for self-introduction. So uh, beginning with you, Mo, could you give us a short take on what brought you here and maybe even just a second or two on what brought you to China? Sure. Um, Thanks for having me on the show, Carol. I really appreciate it. Um, I got into sport history when I attended graduate school at Ohio State. And uh, I was introduced to my advisor, Mel Adelman, who at the time was just a faculty member. Um, and so that's sort of how it happened. It was a little bit of a, <clears throat> a lucky chance that I had a class with him, and I just really enjoyed the material and uh, am lucky to do the kind of things I do now. So I teach sport history and sports sociology at Cal State Sacramento. And I'm in Beijing at Beijing Sport University teaching English majors um, in an introduction to sport history. It's sort of a Western civilization uh, sport history course for them. Okay, great. Jamie, how about a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. Um, so thank you very much for having me on as well. Um, I was a little like Mo in that I got lucky. I was uh, I played college soccer, and I was going to be a college soccer coach, so I just went to grad school to get a a master's degree in sports psychology, and I stumbled into a class in sport history, and I I absolutely loved it at the University of Iowa. Um, So I'm now at Penn State in the Department of Kinesiology. We have a history and philosophy of sport program here, and um, I focus on women's sport history primarily, and I always say that all of my research projects, one way or another, lead back to Carol Oglesby, and you've been so gracious and and generous, so thank you very much. Thank you. Now, all of us that are sport fans um, probably hold the perception that we know it all about sport history, especially our favorite sport. But perhaps we've never, some of us have never actually met a true academic sport historian. So why don't we start with the most basic question, what does a sport historian do and what's the benefit to be gained from having an accurate, a deeper understanding of sport? Uh, Jamie, maybe you could go first on this one. 
Okay, so what does a sport historian do and what's the benefit of knowing sport history? Right. Is that right? <laughs> Golly. Okay. So what we do is we study sport in and of the past, I think. I think the best way to do it is to think about sport and what it means to a particular culture. So just studying sport on its own is kind of an, an isolated picture. We have to understand what it meant to that particular culture at that particular time in history, what it contributes to our broader understanding of, of human civilization. So... Um, I guess what we do is, that's great fun, <laughs> um, and uh, it means kind of putting the pieces together, what's left from the past, looking at those and putting them into a historical context. Uh, Mo, I'm going to ask you to chime in on this as well. I don't know if at parties or um, social events people say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a sport historian. I'd be interested what the response is uh, when you give that answer, but also a little bit about what you see as the benefit from from doing the sport history work that you do. Well, I think Jamie did a really good job of sort of saying, like laying the foundation of what we do, but I do think it's true that most of us are probably a little bit misunderstood. So people generally want to ask questions that are more kind of trivia, like, oh, tell me who won the most games, and then you have to explain well, we're not quite as interested in some of those details. I think the details are important, but I always try to tell my students, you know, if you know the order things occurred, it's it's more important to know the order than the actual dates. Um, and it's good to know the people because it, it is about putting the pieces together and figuring out what it all means to the, to the rest of what it is that we're thinking about. So sport is just one part of our culture, but it tells us so many things about our culture, like the ways that we think about men and women and the relationship between men and women and what women are allowed or not allowed to do. So sport can be sort of this little entryway to talk about other elements of society that sometimes people might even have a harder time talking about. So, yeah, you really have to sort of dispel people's ideas that you're a trivia machine. In the long road up, this uh, series of shows, we're focusing roughly on the last 50 years of the 20th century, 1950 to 2000. So it's kind of modern history at that. Um, do either of you, I, w- I want to ask each of you to answer the question, I wonder if you see U.S. women's sport history as having any stages or epochs or whatever term you want to use. Um, if, if so, where does this 50-year period fall in the stages? Uh, Mo, would you take, take, take this one first? Sure. Um, I've kind of been thinking about this, you know, um, how we divide things up. I think decades are a really easy way to do it, but sometimes it may be a little bit misleading because things don't always sort of happen in such a chronological way. Um, but I think probably the 50s until now is a good one to think about because it's post-World War, so that's kind of another convenient way to divide things up if we think about wars, although unfortunate way to divide. Um, but it's also sort of a much more modern era, so I'm probably less likely to think about, well, I, I guess I'm willing to think about stages. It's just hard to always really determine where something starts and where it ends because there's so many exceptions. 
So a lot of times we use Title IX as this marking point, which I definitely think it is, but there's so much happening for women in sport before Title IX that gets a little bit forgotten because we sort of see 72 as the starting point. So um, I, I guess it's sort of a, a good modern era for women in sport, and a lot of great things are happening, but it's definitely sort of a start and stopping uh, period for me, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jamie, your, your thoughts on that. I, I had asked each of you to think about this stage idea. I'm not sure it's anything that is commonly dealt with in, in typical sport history, but um, wonder what your thought is on this, Jamie. Yeah, yeah, that's actually, uh, I wrote a, a book where I was trying to think about these different eras in women's sport history because, you know, as, as Mo said, the decade is sort of an easy period for us to conceptualize, but things aren't, aren't that tidy. Um, I would say, for me, the most exciting time would be kind of the late 60s, and again, I'm agreeing with Mo that there was a lot of really exciting, important stuff that happened before Title IX was passed in 1972, and it really didn't, we didn't really see its immediate effects or its application to sport until years later, and there's, you know, periods of setback and regression. Um, I, I think, you know, the 50s, we have some discontent, but things really start taking off in the late 1960s. Um, and then in the late 1970s, we start to see a little backlash against that progress. And, Carol, you know this better than anyone. But for me, you know, the late 60s to the late 70s is really this dynamic, exciting period of change. And then I'd say we see it again in the 90s. Um, and maybe part of it, I'm thinking now, might have to do, for looking at U.S. sport, it might have a lot to do with uh, who the president is at the time, you know. I think when we had a Republican in office, we see sort of a backlash against Title IX. I don't know the best way to carve up the eras. The, this is very interesting. Um, I'm wondering if each of you uh, could identify, you, you've mentioned um, Title IX um, as, as a landmark for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what about any, are there any other people or events? I, I know sometimes the Olympic Games seem to be um, some kind of a stimulus point, but if we're looking at this period, uh, maybe just before Title IX and just after Title IX? Um, well, I was going to say, um, Matt Hover and I just wrote this chapter about the Santa Clara Swim Club, and that is, to me, it's this girl swim team in the 1960s that's just so dominant, and they're teenage girls who really make up the Olympic team, like Chris Von Salta and Donna De Verona and Claudia Kolb and Pokey Watson, like all these great American Olympic swimmers who come out of this one swim club um, in Santa Clara, California. And at least in women's swimming, um, they, they really are it. And um, in some ways they get lost a little bit because then we move into the East German swimmer dominance of the seventies and teenage girls really can't cut it, but they also have high school sports now and can compete that way. But, we just sort of made this argue. We made this argument because it seemed amazing, like that teenage girls were such intense athletes in the early '60s, and yet, and they were getting great news coverage in the Bay Area and around the country. But they're sort of not known names to most people. Um, but they definitely had sort of pre-Title IX opportunities. Um, and a lot of that has to do with being white and middle class and upper class, but 
I would say that that's sort of a, a small group of girls that definitely helped shape um, Olympic sport and American sport for girls. Uh, Jamie, your thoughts on um, individuals or events that might have had an impact? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's a tricky question because it tends to be the the event or the individual that got the most media attention, right? So something like the battle of the sexes between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. We've had how many movies made about that now? And it wasn't a great sporting event, but it was a, a you know a harbinger of harbinger of um, social change. But I, I really thought Mo would talk about the Tiger Bells a little bit because she's she's done such great work on Wilma Rudolph. And you know, the if we're talking about programs that produced Olympians, the Tennessee State Tiger Bells are just you know it. Um, okay, so milestones. You know, we could look at the 1996 Olympics, the 1998 Winter Games, the 1999 Women's World Cup of Soccer. You know, there's so much in the 1970s that you could look at. You could look at girls breaking into Little League Baseball in the early 70s. You could look at sort of all these, you know, first women, you know, the first women in, in stock car racing or Formula One or, you know, the first woman to be an umpire. Um, there's all these things going on in the 1970s. But what Mo said is so important because when we focus on these, like, first women or these major media events, we lose so much of what was really going on in women's sports that uh, I'm glad she reminded us. Uh, Maureen, let me go back, uh, give you another shot at the Tiger Bells. uh, How about talking about that a little bit? (laughs) Thanks, Jamie. Could I, Maureen, hang on a second. I'm going to break in here. So sorry, but I have to tell a story. I happened to go to a conference which took me to their school campus and I you know how on campuses they always sell t-shirts and memorabilia and things so I ran into the shop because I was sure I would be able to find a lot about the Tiger Bells they did not have a thing in the this was just just a couple of years ago so uh, many years had transpired but they were really not taking advantage of the Tiger Bell history so I, I just wanted to say that and and now give us some of the detail well, Carol, Rita Liberty, and I had the same experience. When we went to that campus to go through the archives, we also went to the bookstore, and we were expecting to kind of find Tiger Bell gear, and there was really nothing. And we actually mentioned that to the archivist. We said, you could actually make a little bit of money. It's not like we want them to capitalize, but why not Why, why not, not sort of showcase some of your most famous alumna Um so it's disappointing that you've been back there and haven't found it. But, I mean, Ed Temple had a great dynasty, really. Um, he had athletes in the 56 games, 60, 64, 68, 72. Um, in 1960, I think nine of the 17 American women on the Olympic team were Tennessee, Tennessee State Tiger Bells. Um, the entire 4 by 100 relay were Tennessee State Tiger Bells. So... These were female athletes that trained together all year round. They had known each other in high school training at Tennessee State. So he and those Tiger Belts really were, again, like that crux of the Olympic team. Now, I guess we could kind of think about what Jamie's saying is like milestones and these athletes get most of the attention. And and in the Tiger Belts case, they really should. It's just that the attention is every four years, and then they're kind of forgotten, and then they come back, and then... You know, so it's sort of a a strange celebration. You remember them every Olympiad, but in in between, we kind of don't recognize um, what they're doing and what they mean and what they 
continue to do. Well, you know, it's so interesting what you're saying about um, first swimming and uh, the Santa Clara Swim Club uh, track and the uh, Tiger Bells. Um, I think there's also a story about some of the early softball teams, um, like, I'm, I'm not, not sorry, I'm, I mean basketball, like the Flying Queens. Um, do you think, what is your sense that the sports, that there's a great difference in the timelines and the stages by sport? Or do you think it's more likely to talk about sport generically in relation to the development of women through time? Does it differ a lot by sport by sport, or is it more like a common theme throughout? I think it differs um, by sport. I think, I think it's important to to mention that the, the Tiger Balls that Mo was talking about was a historically black college, right? So, you know, predominantly white schools weren't promoting track and field for women until well into the late 1970s. I don't know how you feel about it, Mo, but... Well, yeah, I think that that is a factor as well, and it's an individual sport. So something like basketball, um, I mean, even if we look at kind of the makeup of the Olympic rosters, you're going to look at and see, like, pre-Moscow boycott and post, there's just an integration of the team that you're sort of like, why didn't it integrate sooner? Because mm-hmm. black women were playing basketball for many, many years, especially in colleges in, like, the 20s and 30s, and... And again, those are sort of histories we just don't know quite as much about. Um, so I think it's it's sport in general, but I think there's probably some sports that are a little bit better at record keeping or storytelling um, and how they keep track of those things. Like the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in Tennessee is a really great space. Uh, but oh, okay. that I'm going to I'm going to have be... to break in. Mo, sorry, I have to break in now. We, we have to take okay. a short break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to pick up that thought. Please don't lose it. Uh, and uh, we'll finish this particular conversation and then look at some of the unique specializations of our two guests. So uh, we're on Voice America, the Empowerment Channel, Women in Sport, The Long Road Up. up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. 
Welcome back to our show. We're speaking today with doctors Jamie Schultz and Maureen Moe Smith uh, about some history. And I apologize, Maureen, I really, really walked over your last words on that um, at that break time. I think you were just talking about the Basketball Hall of Fame and other ways that uh, some sports keep a little bit better track of their history than others. Could you, is it, was there anything else you wanted to say on that? Sorry. I was just saying that it's the it's actually the women's basketball hall of fame in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um and there's a there's some really interesting exhibits there about teams and people, players, um and it's it seems like some of that information ought to be more known um to all sport fans, not just someone that might visit that space. So I think Hall of Fames are good. It's just how do we disseminate the materials to, um, I guess, to the to the broader general audience, so that it's not such a discovery when you learn about the Redheads basketball team. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you give people who might be listening and interested um, enough uh, mention the name of the Basketball Hall of Fame for Women again, and where it's located, so someone might be able to Google it and and maybe find out a little bit more about that if they were interested. Yes, it's uh, the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, and it's in Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay, great. Now then, uh, moving on, um, each of you is distinguished in this field of sport history. You have written on several specializations and publication areas, and we don't have a lot of time here, but I'd like to ask you to select one or two of your favorites. So I'm just going to ask each of you in turn uh, to give a very few minutes sketch of this favorite topic that you've really loved taking on. So, um, Jamie, how about if you start with this one? Okay. Um, I'll, you want to do one and then we'll just alternate? Yes, yes, let's do it okay. like that. So I think the project I'm most proud of to date is a, a book I wrote called Qualifying Times, and I was looking at the history of women in sport in primarily the 20th century and looking at the ways that there were these milestones, these points of change in that history that we don't usually think of. So I, I looked at things like menstrual technologies and tennis fashions, um, some things on debates about competition in women's sports, uh, the sex test, sometimes called gender verification in women's sports, backlash against the prog- progress that women made in the 70s, um, sports bra, and uh, changes in cheerleading. Did, did any of the, uh, as you were developing your work, um, h- how much surprised you or, or did anything surprise you about what you found? Oh, everything surprised me. It, it was, you know, it, it's, I'm, I think Mo probably has the same experience, and you start to dig in the research, and you think, God, I never knew that before. Um, one of the things that surprised me is that the history of women's sports, if you look at the 20th century, hasn't always been this kind of linear, progressive narrative. There's been setbacks. There's been backlash. There's been, um, you know, you ask the question about, should we organize the history of women's sports according to sport? But it also is dependent on where you live, so, you know, rural versus urban um, you know, Midwest versus the South. Uh, it's dependent on race. It's dependent on social class. So when we, when we talk about women's sport history, um, there's no kind of monolithic category of women. It's it's uh, really dependent on who you are, where you are, um, what your background is. It's um, it's really hard to tell a complete history of women's sport and take everything and everyone into account. 
Very good. Uh, Maureen, how about your number one? Well, number one is hard. Um, you know, that's the great thing about, I think, our jobs or our fields is that we can kind of have an interest and just follow it as far or as short as we want to. So um, I actually am working on a project that is about material culture, and I, I really owe it in, in large part to Jamie. She was giving a presentation at a sport history conference once about a statue. And the whole time, well, the whole I was sitting there listening to her, and it was just like getting me thinking about this statue that I had seen at San Jose State of Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And after Jamie's session, I started to work on that, and it came out as an article, but then it sort of morphed into something much bigger. Uh, so now I kind of travel around looking for these statues, and people send me things all the time. Um, but <laughs> Some of the two of the ones that I think are really kind of interesting relates to what we're talking about is um, a couple statues of Pat Summit in Tennessee. So Pat Summit was uh, the longtime coach of the women's basketball team at the University of Tennessee, and they built this probably nine foot statue of her on their campus. Um, and a couple hours away, she had she had gone to school at University of Tennessee Martin. They also built a statue of her, but the statue of Martin is of Pat Summit, her basketball coach, another woman, and then the athletic director when she was a player who was another woman. And the three women are kind of uh, on, on one knee each kind of setting up a basketball play. So it's a really interesting statue um, in that the way it's formed, but it's also three women, and that's a really rare thing in sport, but even outside of sport. There's just not as many statues of women so Pat Sum is sort of an interesting person because she's got these. But then when you think about the one at the University of Tennessee, it's so big and, you know, she's so important. And, and then she retires because of her Alzheimer's. But you also realize that when it's being built is all the turmoil in the women's athletics at University of Tennessee where there's all this sexism uh, happening, and yet they're building the statue. So it's sort of a really interesting multi-layered story um, where the end result is this really great-looking statue, but if you really kind of look underneath, there's a lot of uh, interesting politics to it. For sure. Maureen, uh, we lost your uh, your uh, feed for just a couple of seconds there. Um, you were talking about the uh, statue of uh, the the uh, I think it's the Black Salute. Uh, is that the statue? Yes. C- could you describe that a little bit to listeners? They might not know about this. The what what was the content of the statue? Yeah. So Tommy Smith and John Carlos were the two American uh, athletes in 1968 who stood on the victory stand um, and what people would call a Black Power salute. Um, and Peter Norman is the second place. Uh, winner from Australia. And so Tommy Smith and John Carlos both attended San Jose State. And so as a way to honor them, students in San Jose in probably the mid-2000s decided that they were going to build a, a monument or a statue to them. And what was created by this artist named Rigo 23 was basically a statue that's uh, it's sort of the photograph of the iconic image, but made into a statue. Uh, the one difference is that they've taken Peter Norman off, and so the second place platform is empty, but it says 
take a stand. So they created this sort of activist site on their campus where students would gather to take a stand with Smith and Carlos, who had also gone to school there. That's great. Um, uh, Jamie, where's your, who's in your, which, which topic is in your number two position? <laughs> Well, I, I just want to say very briefly that Mo's work, I think she's underselling her work on statues because it's really genius to take this kind of form of material culture and think about it as a type of memory. And what Mo does so nicely is she thinks about it both in terms of the past, what's being represented, but also the present, what's going on politically that gave rise to these statues. So I don't want to give her short shrift on that. She does great work. But um, my number two spot, I thought about this a lot. And I think I did um, these oral histories. Uh, I got a grant from Harvard University to do it with these. Uh, in 1970, before 1972, women weren't allowed to run marathons. And so if they wanted to run, they would crash these men's races. They would show up and they would hide in the bushes and jump in and do all sorts of things to run the races. So I found about 13 women that had crashed men's races before 1972 that um, allowed me to interview them. And uh, it was just so fascinating to talk to these women. They were just tremendous, and I, I, I was so thrilled with this project just because I got to talk to these amazing women. What Again, what, what would be your most surprising takeaway from the stories? Oh, you know, there's so many, but one of the things that I was just uh, struck by was that all these women were so such high-achieving women. They'd gone on to do such amazing things in their lives, and a lot of it they credited... Um, not to their sort of groundbreaking status, you know, not these pioneers, but just that uh, um, that running gave them such, you know, their participation in sport gave them these feelings of freedom and autonomy and independence that they hadn't known in other areas of their life. And they, they went on and translated that into really amazing accomplishments. Well, I tell you, as as uh, we've been discussing, I've been doing b- things in this field for a long time, and in fact, even um, some work with uh, the marathon, but I never knew there were 13 women who did that. That's new news to me. I just knew there oh, were yeah. a couple of people. There was the, the Bobby who jumped the the uh, subway in Boston at one point, but, but 13, that's really amazing. Um, okay, yeah. Mo, who's your number two? What's in your number two position? Well, you know, I guess probably why it's hard to say something's your favorite, because when it's done, my mind sort of says, okay, that's sort of done. But I guess I do have to give Wilma Rudolph a little bit of credit <laughs> here. Um, the book that I wrote with Rio Liberty, like that was a, probably like a seven-year process um, but it was amazing and great, and I wish I knew more still about Wilma Rudolph. Like, I wish there were more things that I feel like we didn't un- uncover about her. Um, I don't think we set out necessarily to uncover things, but I guess I just wish that there were more things out there that we could have included. Um, but I think she's just a really, really interesting woman who died just way too soon, and I just you know, it's it's weird hypothetical thinking, but I just really wish that she had lived longer because I think in the ways that we celebrate athletes and especially women athletes, she would have been somebody that we would have really latched on to at some point. Um, but she just died way before we could kind of move her into that sort of elevated status. 
So that was a project, uh, again, seven years. Anytime something takes that long, I guess it's probably your favorite or not. Um, but it was a really good, good, I think, process and outcome. Hey, Carol, um, can I just say again that Mo is underselling it? She and Rita just won the North American Society for Sport History Book Award. So they deemed it the best book in sport history of the last year. So it's it's a really phenomenal accomplishment, and it should yes. be her favorite. <laughs> Big kudos. Um, Maureen, um, tell us, again, who is the publisher, and, and how would people uh, – uh, Give them, give the title, and so that they could, it could actually be traced down by someone who is listening. It, the book is published by Syracuse University Press, as my agent Jamie has probably <laughs> say. Thank you, Jamie. Um, and the book is called, well, you know, you could say it a couple different ways, and I'm not sure how I'd say it necessarily. Representing Wilma Rudolph or representing Wilma Rudolph. We kind of did a little play on things. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a book that we we really worked on for a long time together, and uh, we I think we were both really surprised to win, but pretty happy about it. Uh, but still a little bit surprised because there's so many great books now coming out in sport history, uh, especially coming from people that are in in the sport history group. Um, that it's uh, quite an honor to win. Okay, we have uh, just a few minutes before our next break, but I want to try to slip one question in here for each of you. Um, when you were introducing yourselves, you didn't talk about any sport, your own sport history, and I'm wondering if you what what your main sport participation was, if any, um, and and if you find your uh, topics for sport history um, arising from your participation, or are you really looking at totally different areas. Um, Maureen, could you go first on that one? Sure. Uh, when I was in college, I went to Ithaca College, and I ran track and field over a period of five years. Um, I played soccer one year there, but really I was track and field throughout. Um, I don't know that I necessarily use track and field or, you know, to find what I do, although Wilma Rudolph did in track and field also, that may be more of a coincidence. I think probably more what shaped some of my ideas was being a college athlete. And right at the time when Title IX, I mean, it's 10, 10 or 15 years after Title IX, but it's like we were still feeling the effects. Um, so some of our sport competitions were just going from AIAW sponsorship to NC2A. Um, and I think seeing like, the guys have two to a room and us having four to a room. I think those experiences as the college athlete were more kind of profound than the actual sport at times when it comes to what I'm thinking about and interested in. I'm going to, before Jamie um, finishes up with her question here, I just uh, am going to try to do what I um, have been coached uh, on a little bit by the people at Voice America. The AIAW was the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, and that was the uh, first group that offered collegiate championships for women, and they operated from about 92 to about 82, at which time the NCAA um, championship program kind of overtook the AIAW. So, okay, um, Jamie, how about a sports career for you, and and if did it impact on your academic work or not, or to what extent, one way or another? 
Oh, were you ever president of the AIAW, Carol? Oh, I was number one. I was the first, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Talk about underselling. Okay. Um, I played soccer all through college. I loved it. Um, I never thought about all the inequalities and how far behind with the men's program we were, uh, and it didn't strike me till I got into graduate school. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it shaped a little bit, but I try to avoid too much on soccer because um, it can be... A little painful sometimes to see whatever all the stuff I missed out on, but um, yeah, oh, soccer oh, was my oh, sport. Oh. You, you've got it. What talk about the pain a little bit, if you don't mind? What yeah. do you mean by the pain? Oh, talk about the pain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I started out as a great player, and my career, uh, my senior year, was not a good one, and so it's it's painful for me. Right, right. That's uh, for people who do not know me at all as the host, I am in sports psychology. So I would be very interested in talking more at another time with Jamie Schultz about her senior year and soccer. All right. Great, everyone. This is time for our last break. This is Voice America, the empowerment channel, taking on the long road up. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. And I'm going to move to asking our guests about possibly some of the less pleasant sides of sport, American sport. So um, for each of you, um, I'm wondering what you see as the worst or most egregious misunderstandings of girls' and women's sports history and and what lies under the misunderstandings that, that you've been able to uncover. Uh, Jamie, would you go first? All right, so egregious misunderstandings about uh, girls' and women's sport history. Um, I, would, I think sometimes if you would ask someone on the street what they think about girls' and women's sport or the, the history of it, they'd say either first that girls and women simply aren't is- interested in sport or second, and maybe even worse, that uh, it's not interesting for them to watch. So I, I think um, part of what underlies that misunderstanding is that we expect women to play exactly like men. Um, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But instead of thinking about it in terms of the, the beauty of sport or the you know, exciting competition, 
you know, there's that whole controversy right now about, you know, should we lower the rims for women's basketball so they can dunk more often and be like the men's game instead of trying to appreciate it on its own terms. Um, so I think the understanding, misunderstanding is that it's not interesting and that girls and women aren't interested. Um, the second part, that girls and women aren't interested in sport and show lower levels of competition or, or participation, um, stems from the fact that women haven't been allowed to play sports uh, for nearly as long as men have been allowed to play. So you have to give them a little time to catch up, you know. The I think one thing that history shows us is that if you open opportunities in sports for girls and women, they flood to those opportunities. So it's this question about is it interest that comes first or is it opportunity that comes first? And I think that's important in understanding, um, you know, sometimes that women don't participate or watch sports as often as men do. Is there anything, uh, would you say, uh, Jamie, that um, there's any any factor that mitigates this uh, misunderstanding? Uh, I'm thinking, for instance, a lot of the autobiographies of women athletes um, when they are when they are completed uh, we'll talk about how they had either a mother or a father that really um, contributed tremendously to their development would you say that something like an interested parent or um, a teacher or a coach what is it if if anything either individual or social that maybe mitigates this um, uh, misunderstanding about interest and the intensity of girls' interest in sport. Yeah, I think parents play a huge role, and I think now that you know, people, women that came of age during Title IX, during the sort of upsurge in women's participation, um, you're more likely now to have a mom who did play sports, right? Rather than somebody like me, my mom never had the chance to, even though she would have loved to play sports. So I think, um, I think that plays an important role. Fathers, mothers, whatever. Uh, I also think. Um, now we're seeing more and more women athletes in the media, and I think the role of uh, role models cannot be underestimated. If you see, if you don't see people that look like you playing a sport, you might get the message that it's it, it's not something that's for you. Um, so I, I think that plays a big role as well. Maureen, how about how about your your thoughts about what are, what's the worst misunderstanding? Um, I think Jamie did a really great job of. of summarizing it, like this whole idea that girls historically haven't been interested, but I think also reminding us that a lot of times they really were denied access, and when they were given access, they were portrayed in such a way that it would almost discourage many other girls from doing it. So I think, mm-hmm. um, Carol, you just mentioned uh, like when a female athlete writes an autobiography, which there really haven't been as many as we might think, but one of the worst ever, I think, was Babe Diedrichsen's autobiography, which sort of promoted this idea that, you know, like that she she got married to George Zaharias so that she really was more appealing in the media and that the media would not uh, chastise her so much for her looks and her kind of perceived masculinity. So I think in some ways, um, one of the most egregious things is this portrayal of girls and women that do sport as less female um, and some of the homophobia that goes along with that. I think that's mm-hmm. been a pretty powerful tool to keep a lot of girls out of sport or a way for girls, you know, to kind of police each other and how you might behave. 
We really um, haven't touched on the homophobia aspect of women's sport in our first two shows very much. Um, I'm wondering if either of you or both of you would want to comment about that specifically in terms of uh, the negative effects on girls and women's participation that uh, this these kinds of uh, preconceptions about the female athlete w- are brought. You want to go first? Well, I, I mean, if you, I'll, I'll just say one quick thing and then turn it to Jamie. Um, I think it's still really powerful. So as many, like we feel like, okay, women's basketball is just full of lesbians, but I, I don't know that there's that many that are out. Like Brittany Griner is out, but I couldn't, I'm not sure I could list that are actually out lesbians, um, but then women that do basketball or softball, the way that they still feel compelled or pressured to appear in ways that are hyper-feminine, like when you watch the Women's Softball World Series, all the hair and makeup and ribbons that are really not central to playing softball, but they feel like, okay, I need to present myself this way so that it's acceptable to others. So I think it's still, whether it's self-imposed or media or coaches or parents, I think there's still uh, sort of a powerful idea around homophobia that keeps girls kind of in check. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jamie, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's historically been such a powerful form of social control, either to keep women out of sports or to keep um, gay women in sports closeted. Um, it's it's really something to think about. And I think it goes hand in hand with what Mo was saying, with this promotion of this very feminine, very sort of heterosexy image, right, with the hair and the makeup. Or, you know, you look at the way that women athletes are depicted in the media, you know. Just today, was it today that Chris Christie said something about how important it was for women like Maria Sharapova to be in tennis because we need those sexy models on the court? You know, something to that effect. It's this idea that... We can't value women athletes as athletes unless they look a particular way or date a particular person, you know? Um, Maureen, let me take uh, the question back to you for just a moment. Um, I happen to uh, be aware of the fact that you've been very involved with uh, some groups and organizations that are advocacy groups for women's sport, um, like the Western Society of Physical Education for College Women. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the impact and the effects of of groups that have of women mostly women advocates or or uh, like-minded men av- advocates um, have have they played a role in uh, reducing some of the um, biases um you know i'm not sure how much of a role we could like how much credit we can give to the western society which is now open to members across the country jamie um thank you <laughs> it, it's been a great space for women, um, but, you know, a lot of people have also critiqued that group in, in using some homophobic language, right? So anytime that something is women's only, it's going to be criticized or kind of questioned. But I do think that women's groups like the Women's Sports Foundation, they've been great as far as supporting uh, girls and women in sport and trying to uh, allow for many ways to present yourself. So if you want to present yourself as heterosexual, that's great. They support you. But if you also want to present yourself as just you doing you, and it doesn't necessarily fit um, mainstream media's idea of beauty, I think the Women's Sports Foundation is also kind of still supportive of you. So I think a group like that really has much more 
carry than a small academic group. Uh, but our small academic group definitely supports women in sports um, as our students, as potential coaches, as future academics, for sure. Uh, Jamie and Maureen, I think that you too, um, more than many people uh, in the sport history and sports studies world have talked about the intersection of gender and race um, in the United States. So I'm going to ask you each to uh, just look at that gender race intersection for a second in your work. Um, uh, for example, Maureen, did, did you see the Rudolph story uh, telling us something um, compelling about the gender race narrative in the U.S. or or anything else from your studies that involve race that you could that you could add here? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a great question um, and one that we really focused on a lot. And we didn't we didn't really even reduce it just to gender and race. We tried to really think about how gender, race, social class, but also one's able-bodiedness or maybe just different disabilities would interact with those identities as well. Um, but the way we would often think of Wilma, Wilma Rudolph was like she was sort of this perfect storm. Like she was African-American, very low-income family, um, had polio as a child, like all these things, and a female in the South, so all these factors that would work against her, and yet she was successful. And a lot of times, I think most of society says, well, if someone like that can do it, then why is anybody else having an issue? But I think it's really the intersection of all those identities that we tried to focus on. Like, just being a female really doesn't explain Wilma Rudolph. Mm -hmm. Just looking at her as an African-American doesn't really explain all the nuances of her life. So it's really thinking about all her identities as they interrelate with each other. I mean, obviously there's times and settings where one identity might be more relevant or more of a factor, um, but I think we really tried to to always think about how they fit together. And a lot of times when you read the news media, you realize, oh, they're just thinking about her as black, or they're just thinking about her as a woman, or they're just thinking about her as American. And when you do that, you really reduce her to something much more simple than she really is. Thanks, Maureen. Um, Jamie, you also published an article that was in part titled Racialized Memory in American Football, a pretty intriguing title, I think. Could you tell us a little bit about that and and, uh, how this might, did it have any kind of a narrative that fit with the American woman athlete, uh, African-American woman athlete in the U.S.? Oh, sadly, no, no. I, uh, I think what you're talking about is a book I, that came out uh, earlier this year called Moments of Impact, and I was really looking at um, race and violence um, and memory, but I was using uh, African-American football players. Uh, so I was looking in the 1920s, 1930s, and the late 1940s, early 1950s, um, and I was looking at college sports. And so really, if you're thinking about women athletes at that time, um, playing college sports, you're really looking at historically black colleges and universities. There weren't a lot of women's sports during that time at the collegiate level, uh, and if they were, they were rarely integrated. Um, so sadly, it, it didn't have a lot to do with women, but uh, it, it's a good question. Well, what, what was your, what was your uh, primary takeaway from that book? Well, what I was really looking at by the end was uh, the way... So, 
there, I looked at three stories where um, black football players had been either seriously injured or killed while playing college football, and the ways that different schools and different regions have remembered those men over time. And so I was looking at what I called racialized memory, the way that those memories became increasingly racialized. So at the time, you know, people weren't really... Uh, too, too up on saying, oh, you know, racism was the cause of this injury, racism was the cause of this death. But you, you fast forward, you know, 50 years and, and people are unequivocal in their assessment saying, oh, this was absolutely a racist act. So I was sort of looking at what changed over time to, to uh, change people's memories. Very good. Maybe give the title of that book and how a person might be able to Google it if they wanted to. Sure, sure. It's called um, Moments of Impact is the short title, um, and it came out uh, early 2016 from the University of Nebraska. Very good. Um, we just have a couple of minutes left for each person here, and i like to finish up with a crystal ball question. Um, I'm wondering what you each believe is out ahead for women's sport history, um, new people or new explorations. What, what do you see in the immediate uh, time ahead? Uh, Maureen, how about going first on this one? Hmm. Well, you know, I really want to end on a happy note, but I've been thinking a lot about the 2015 Women's World Cup and kind of reading it in comparison with 1999. And it seems like it's almost like we have collective amnesia about things, like the kind of things they were talking about in 2015, like, oh, this is a celebration of Title IX. We already celebrated in 1999. So I think, you know, when we only celebrate big moments, we forget that we've actually not done any structural changes to make things better. Um, so I, I'm not sure I can end on a happy note. I sort of feel like we're going to have the Olympics this summer and we're going to celebrate whatever great things American women do. And then maybe two years in the winter, we'll do that again. And two years after. So I think the Olympics will mark, I think they'll continue to be like a space where we keep celebrating, but I'm not sure we're going to make some structural changes that actually result in more girls doing sports, which I think could be a better uh, use of our time in some ways. Thanks, Jamie. Last, uh, last words here. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I just can't wait to see what happens. I think uh, your question was about what's going to change in sport history. And I think Mo's point about just celebrating these big moments, I think historians are doing really exciting things to look beyond these big moments, to see you know, what the sporting yeah. or physically active experience was like for the average woman, and average being... A relative term, right? So. Okay. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. Our time's coming to an end for this week. Um, Tuesday, June 21, our guest will be Catherine Switzer, the boundary breaker for women in the Boston Marathon. So be sure to join us on The Long Road Up, brought to you by Voice America, the Empowerment Channel. Thank you for listening to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Please join Carol Oglesby for another edition next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have an amazing week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.